Welcome back, fair listener, to the War Daddy Podcast, a deep dive into the dark heart of history and warfare. I am your host, Will Kresh, and as always, I am truly honored to be led to your ears yet again for some tales of battle, glory, and all the horror that goes with it. So, you might have noticed that this is part one of three. Well, simply put, this is an epic tale. Epics take time to tell well. So, instead of dropping a fat six-hour episode on you, well, let's call this a saga. Three parts, we've spared no expense, it's all available right now, so feel free to enjoy at your own leisure. Now, we finally reach the grand finale, the heart that this spear has been driving towards. But before we jump in, I want to offer this little disclaimer. What you're about to hear is true. It all really did happen, every bit of it. But it's being told to you through the cinematic lens of a storyteller, uh, campfire style, if you will. I am not a historian. If you want all the numbers and the exact rivet counting facts, then I implore you, pick up any of the books written by the incredibly thorough authors that I read and studied to get this far. They are all listed on the website, wardaddypodcast.com, but that is not my focus. This is art, not math. This episode features a few invented characters, reconstructed dialogue, impossible perspectives, but in so doing, nothing is untrue. The facts are all there, just rendered to the greatest possible effect. And in this style, my goal is to transport you to another place and time. I want to enter that moment. I'm trying to feel history. So, as old Billy Shakespeare put it, Think when we talk of horses that you see them, printing their proud hooves in the receiving earth. For tis your thoughts that must now deck our kings. Carry them here and there, jumping over time, turning the accomplishments of many years into an hourglass. So please, lend me your ears as eyes. Chapter 1 A Cacophony of Hell January 26th, 1945. A tiny island called Ram Ri floats off the coast of Burma. Captured by the Japanese years ago, now their day of reckoning has finally arrived. The Allies have come to claim this little emerald hell as their own. Just another launch pad to put their bombers in striking distance of the Japanese homeland. As thousands of British troops land on the beaches unopposed, the Japanese fall back to their stronghold deep in the jungle's interior. The garrison has dutifully held this miserable, vine-strangled rock for years, living amongst the scorpions, serpents, malaria, and every villainous, hissing, creepy-crawly nature can conjure. With no hope of support, resupply, or rescue, their orders are to fight and die as servants of the Empire. The defenders dig in for the inevitable. Tonight, you are one of them. The glowing moon contorts freakish shadows across your imagination. 
There is no sleep. The chorus of a malevolent jungle seems to permeate your flesh. You can do nothing but wait. Wait for whatever may come, all the while feeling the eyes of death upon you. You wait and wait. The forest plays tricks on your fatigued mind. To stay awake, you try to assign owners to each bizarre nocturnal noise, but the surreal sounds defy earthly origins. Your mind wanders. Is this where I die? Will this shitty mud bunker dug with my own cracked fingernails soon serve as my tomb? The only thing I know for sure is that I am terrified. At least, when I finally die, it will be facing my enemy as a warrior. If that is the only way for me to escape this cursed, rotten island, then so be it. But I am so afraid, so achingly tired I want to shed my skin. I feel as if I'm floating, rising up through inky water. I can see my skinny, hunched body down below, squatting in the mud, clutching my rifle. Am I asleep? My mind is alive, but my body is nothing but empty meat and bone. Is this what it feels like when one's soul leaves their body? something. I see something, but my body does not stir. Something comes. Something slithers towards me. I can see it. Wires send flares arcing, bursting into the sky, casting the world in freakish green light. The faces of screaming Japanese are lit up in the strobe of rat-a-tatting machine gun muzzle flash. Bullets thud upon entering flesh and explode like cherry blossoms upon exiting. You watch, spellbound, as charging figures drop hitting a wall of machine gun fire. Finally, shocked back to consciousness, you realize you have not fired a single shot. By the time you raise your rifle, the din of battle has faded as abruptly as it came on. Is that it? Is it over? Then, in the distance... Mortars and artillery whistle and crash. They've got a zero. Geysers of earth erupt in every direction. A direct hit blasts a machine gun nest into oblivion. Now the enemy comes in earnest. Their advance covered by a maelstrom of screeching death. A shell burst shatters your eardrums. 
the shockwave ragdolling your body to the soft mud. As you stumble to your feet, it's as if you're underwater, everything playing in soupy slow motion. You witness the enemy leap into your parapet. The skull of your captain is crushed by a rifle butt. The hissing roar of a flamethrower blazes blinding orange, engulfing the HQ bunker. What was a man just an instant ago is now a charred skeleton stumbling across the carnage. The flesh of his face roasted clean off. Two boiled eyeballs drip out of blackened sockets. Then, just feet away, you spot what can only be death incarnate. A hulking figure with shining eyes, a coal black beard, turban tied atop his head. You go for your rifle, but it's long gone. In the figure's hand, you see a gore-soaked forearm-length curved blade gleaming in the firelight. But then, the figure's gleaming eyes change their expression, burning malice giving way to... Shock. The pop of a pistol rings out behind you. The bullet cuts through the air and hits home directly between the eyes of this demon, stopping him cold. As this newly made corpse collapses, crumpling into the mud, you turn to see his killer, none other than Major Hayoshi. Blood spattered but stoic as ever, you recognize his unmistakably hawk-like features. This is the man who trained you, taught you how to plunge a bayonet, how to sharpen bamboo into devious booby traps, and never once allowed you to forget to take your salt tablets. Over the roar of battle, you hear Hiyoshi's screamed order, Retreat! Hellish reality now crashing like a tsunami. You scramble to your feet and follow your major as he sprints away from the inferno and into the darkness of the jungle. Battle sounds fade into the distance, now replaced by your own encumbered footsteps sloshing through the deep swamp water. Hiyoshi stops short. You instinctively crouch, all senses groping in the darkness. Moonlight betrays faint ripples on the still water. Did you see that? Something sliding through the murk. Just then, Hiyoshi spots a dim flashlight in the gloom. Upon signaling friendly, you follow the Major as he splashes ahead. Survivors, many of them. As your eyes adjust, you make out crouched figures huddled in clumps among the mangroves, some wounded and bleeding, all wide-eyed with fear. Hiyoshi confers with the other surviving officers, quickly realizing that he is the highest-ranking man left alive. How many made it out? Hiyoshi asks. A corporal answers, at least 900 or more. When the enemy flanked, they cut us in half. We had no choice but to flee. Sergeant Misaku, one of the old breed, growls. And now we are trapped in this godforsaken swamp. What the hell is that?
surrender? <laughs> the bastards, spits Misaku. We must counterattack. Strike now and overrun them before they consolidate. Don't be a fool, hisses Hiyoshi. We would be nothing more than meeting the grinder. And by daybreak, they'll have five times our number dug into that position. Heresy, roars Misaku. We must fight. It is our sacred duty. I know what duty we owe, says Hiyoshi through clenched teeth. Second Battalion Stronghold is at Leitong. We must reconnect with them. There, we will make our final stand. The corporal pipes up. Sir, that's at least ten miles. Ten miles through the heart of the mangrove swamp. There is no map. But Hiyoshi's mind is made up. And so they would be fools to follow us. We cross the swamp. That is the only choice. That is my order. The word is passed along. There is no surrender. So, through the swamp we shall go. But why? To make our deaths more costly to the enemy? There is no outcome that does not lead to death. How does that stupid song go? For the sake of the emperor, I shall not die at home in bed. My bed was turned into kindling when the Yankees turned my hometown into an inferno, along with my mother and my father and my sisters. Will they know how I die? Alone? Afraid? Mosquito-bitten, shot or stabbed or blown apart in this wretched, festering swamp? And so, we march from one nightmare and into another. It is three days since the massacre. Or has it been five? I no longer know. I do know that there are bugs in my skin. Leeches like eels. I do not remember what it is to be dry. I feel as though I am rotting. Men drop below the water and do not break the surface again. There is nothing to be done for them. But it is the screaming in the night that I cannot understand. A shrill, piercing shriek, thrashing, then silence. What devils lurk in this emerald hell? The sun sinks, the moon rises, my legs can wade through this muck no longer. As I rest, my mind does that thing again where it floats above me. It too has had enough of this mortal vessel. The jungle is swallowing us whole. I see Private Fukuda wade over. As he flicks a match, I smell the first whiff of tobacco I have smelt in what might as well be a thousand years. A miracle. I whisper, and take a drag. I feel the nicotine course through my blood, melding with the malaria that I surely have. It makes me swoon. Fukuda is talking to me, but I can't hear. I am distracted. I, I see something behind him in the water. Something 
cuts through the algae-carpeted muck, little spikes breaking the surface. That log is moving. Again, I cannot talk, I cannot move, but I see. A 20-foot-long saltwater crocodile explodes from the water. Its massive jaws snap shut, crunching through Fukuda's flesh and bone. But it's not just one. Another black-scaled beast erupts, clamping down on his arm, its head torquing, ripping off the limb with otherworldly strength. Shots ring out as more beasts burst from the water. Reptilian fangs shred living human flesh. Shrieks of bloody murder fill the air. Again, I'm caught in the hellstorm of terror and death. The devil has sent us into a feeding frenzy. Men insane with fear thrash past me, fighting through the waist-deep muck, but are caught in the eruption of snapping jaws. Claw away from the madness with all I've got, but I'm met with an explosion of gleaming fangs. I turn back, but there is no escape. The monsters surround us, called to the frothing melee by the smell of fresh blood. A thick, muscular tail takes my legs out from under me, and I crash beneath the water. As I surface, Gulping for air, I spot Hayoshi across the churning carnage. The Major is swinging his katana wildly, slashing at the serpents, squeezing off shots with his Nambu. That's when I hear the hissing. I turn to my right and now find myself staring into the giant, gaping maw of a 20-foot crocodile. Countless white fangs stud its prehistoric jaws. As it glides towards me, I am frozen. Through the haze of fear, I catch Hayoshi's final moments. A beast clamped on his thigh forks its whole body, tearing the limb from the socket, dragging Hayoshi into its death roll. I turn back to the gaping maw, inching ever closer its inhuman eyes boring into my soul when, through no control of my own, I am conscious of my shaking hands groping at my combat weapon. They find a lone grenade, and out of pure muscle memory, the pin is pulled and the bomb tossed into the open mouth of the creature, and triggered by reflex alone, the jaws snap shut and... That's the last thing I remember, I tell my captors. I don't know what happened next. Perhaps the beasts had eaten their fill. They tell me a thousand men entered that swamp. They have found just twenty so far, most of whom are stark raving mad with fever, rambling and sobbing about the devils that came in the night. They find stray pieces here and there. An arm, a waterlogged severed head, 
things washed out of the mangroves have slowly found their way to the beach. They seem worried about gorillas. You want to find them? Go ahead and look in the swamp. Go ahead and share their fate. Go ahead and ask those black-scaled demons what happened. The British had no trouble believing these wild claims. Canadian naturalist Bruce Stanley Wright took part in this stage of the battle and witnessed, at least audibly, what he described as a cacophony of hell. These are his words. That night was the most horrible that any member of the motor boat launch crews ever experienced. The crocodiles, alerted by the din of warfare and smell of blood, gathered among the mangroves, lying with their eyes above the water, watchfully alert for their next meal. The crocodiles moved in on the dead, wounded, and injured men who had become mired in the mud. Scattered rifle shots in the pitch-black swamp, punctuated by the screams of the wounded men crushed in the jaws of huge reptiles and the blurred, worrying sound of spinning crocodiles, made a cacophony of hell that has rarely been duplicated on Earth. At dawn, the vultures arrived to clean up what the crocodiles had left. Now, you might be asking, why are we crawling into this particular swamp? Is it because Dan Carlin already covered the tragedy of the USS Indianapolis in all its shark-infested glory? Perhaps, but that's hardly the only reason. The Battle of Ramry Island is a truly unforgettable instance of men charged with killing their fellow man, but quickly finding themselves instead clasped in the vicious jaws of nature. This reptilian version of the Indianapolis tragedy is much harder to verify, and even sometimes it straddles that line between myth and truth. But regardless, the essence of this horrifying episode in many ways illustrates the plight of the Japanese soldier during the final stages of the Second World War. Much like the nation as a whole, this Japanese battalion is destroyed and trapped now faced with ignominious surrender, the greatest sin for a Japanese soldier to commit. They knew on some level that there was no light at the end of their tunnel. No matter what course they were forced to take, it leads to their death. And once that decision is made, once they choose to enter that swamp, even though their hope was to ultimately die with greater cost to their enemy and honor intact, it's not like the movie just cuts to credits. The cost of this decision, one that they considered brave and heroic, was a terrifying, miserable, and violent end. As in seppuku, once you plunge that blade into your belly, you still had to drag it all the way across to spill your guts. Even if performed with a second to land that killing, decapitating blow, this was a grueling, excruciating death. For the men who dug those caves and tunnels on Iwo Jima or Okinawa, being roasted alive by U.S. Marine flamethrowers, for those who chose or were forced to stand against the overwhelming American onslaught, this was a gruesome, 
anonymous, murderous, and tragically wasteful end. Does the word glorious still hold its luster to those dying this kind of gruesome death? The truth about martyrdom is that in practice, it's quite messy. In the last episode, we explored what constitutes as a glorious death from the perspective of the kamikaze pilots. The father of this incredible tactic was Admiral Takehiro Onishi, and he was well aware of the gravity of what he had set in motion. Contemplating not only the future of his nation, but his own lasting legacy, he was quoted saying this, quote, A man's value can never be determined at his death. In my case, there will probably not be anyone, even in a hundred years, to justify what I have done. At the time of this recording, it's been uh, just about 74 years since the kamikaze tactics were initiated. The generation who were kamikaze, who fought for the empire, including those who survived the war, if they are not already gone, they are now not long for this world. With the hundred-year mark that Onishi speaks of rapidly approaching, we will soon find ourselves the ultimate judges of which Onishi is talking about. To humans like us, being so removed from that time and those circumstances, even at the 100-year mark, will there be any justifying of these actions? I mean, I'm asking, I really don't know. Will they ever be justifiable? Now, we finally arrive at the peak moment of this insane, blood-soaked battle for the Pacific. Japan is a zombie nation, abandoned by reason, undeterred and desensitized to its own cracked bones, smoldering cities, and slit-open blood-gushing wounds. Any real hope of victory is destroyed, yet she fights on. But if not for victory, then for what? What makes her keep marching forward? And for the Americans, they didn't have the answer either. And frankly, they really didn't give a shit. Because regardless of what kept her going, no matter what pale horse she mounted, she was riding directly into the gaping maw of death. Also known at the time as the United States Navy. So here we are, on the eve of the final spectacular bonsai charge of the Japanese war machine. Chapter 2, Operation Kikosui. Ordered on April 5th, 1945, Operation Kikusui was named so in honor of our old friend Kunsonoki Masashige, a figure who I hope you'll remember from earlier episodes. He is the Bushido warrior nestled at the heart of this mythology, the man who became the ultimate example of samurai loyalty as a result of his stunning and hopeless suicidal bonsai attack. Even before this final expression of loyalty to his master, he was the emperor's most successful and trusted general, even given the insurmountable honor of flying the imperial seal of the chrysanthemum on his own battle flag. The imperial seal of the chrysanthemum, known as the Kikuman Sho, was adapted to become Kikusui, the floating chrysanthemum, 
Please, for God's sake, pardon my butchery of the Japanese language. Clearly, it is not my strong suit. Anyway, on his flag, the infamous 16-petaled chrysanthemum was shown floating on water because, as the emperor saw it, Kunsonoki had been the one keeping him afloat during the recent tumultuous times of war. With this proud warrior history and mythology always serving as the core around which to rally, Operation Kikusui was a callback to this most desperate but monumental moment in Japanese history. Steeped in the lore of Kunsonoki Masashige, Operation Kikusui was to be the largest, most ambitious suicide attack ever launched. Hidden deep in an island cave bunker, Admiral Matome Ugaki, the man in charge of all the naval aircraft that the Japanese had left, momentarily puts down his cigarette to read a freshly printed transcript. Upon scanning the first few lines, he reads the words that he was dying to hear. Quote, Every unit assigned, whether special attack or not, is expected to fight to the bitter end. Thereby, the enemy will be annihilated, and the eternal foundations of our motherland will be secured. There was no mistaking it. These orders were calling for the first fully coordinated land, sea, and air all-out suicide attack. As a man determined to die himself before the war was finished, this was the death and glory gesture that he was waiting for. Unable to hide a grim smirk, Ugaki says, I call this good news. This was to be the true divine wind that Onishi was calling for, the culminating, irresistible attack from which the Yankees could not fathom, let alone defend. Operation Kikasui was just the kamikaze part in the overall mission known as Operation Tengo, or Heaven Number One. Ugaki's pilots would launch every available aircraft, amounting to a force of more than 500 strong, and come blazing out of the heavens, wreaking havoc on the American carrier fleet, which was charged with protecting the Okinawa landing forces. Then, things got really fun. With the US carriers smashed, they would finally set loose the super battleship Yamato. This legendary behemoth, along with nine escorts, would skirt down the Ryukyu Island chain, finally swinging towards the Okinawa beaches and explode from the darkness with guns blazing, massacring the helpless US transports. Then, after inflicting maximum punishment, the Yamato would beach herself on the coastal coral and use her massive 18-inch turrets as artillery. The Yamato's crew would then join the Okinawa defenders in an all-out suicidal bonsai charge that would throw the Yankee invaders back into the sea at gleaming bayonet point. To Ugaki, this was the ultimate moment. The essence of Bushido played out on a terrifyingly modern scale. But to Rear Admiral Kusaka, the naval chief of staff, these six flimsy pages of insane orders read more like some kind of tasteless joke. There was no mention of traveling through miles of submarine-infested waters, or the hours of daylight steaming with no air support, or even how the Yamato's cannons were to be powered once she was beached, let alone what damage one massive battleship could hope to do to the largest fleet ever assembled. Kusaka considers offering his resignation at that very moment. He was no fool. It's one thing 
to die as a kamikaze, a noble death with the goal of destroying a worthy target, but this was not the same thing. He knew the chances of the Yamato making it to the Okinawa beaches was next to impossible. Upon finishing reading the orders, Ugaki picks up his cigarette, pulls, and exhales defiantly, remarking, The Yankees won't know which way to turn. Kusaka stands dumbfounded by his confidence, or rather self-delusion. With his mind still processing the gravity of these lunatic orders, he finally realizes that his job was to brief the Yamato's command staff of the mission that they were now charged with carrying out. Meanwhile, outside in the Kamikaze barracks, Ichizo Hayashi scrawls his final letter to his mother. As I hope you'll remember, we've heard these final words in the last episode. Quote, We live in the spirit of Jesus Christ, and we die in that spirit. This thought stays with me. It is gratifying to live in this world, but living has a spirit of futility about it now. It is time to die. I do not seek reasons for dying. My only search is for an enemy target against which to dive. With serenity that can only be found in a man who exists as if he is already dead, Ichizo rests and readies his soul. He does not know it yet, but the mission his whole life has been leading to has finally been ordered. The stage for the biggest kamikaze attack in history has been set. Now, as I move forward in painting this picture, I must pay homage to the fantastic Russell Spur. His book called A Glorious Way to Die not only inspired me to delve into this topic, but has served as an invaluable source of research. I'll be relying heavily on his work as we move forward. And info for his book, as well as the other invaluable resources like Divine Wind and Kamikaze Diaries and all the others, they can all be found on the War Daddy podcast website. So if this topic is something you really want to dig into, these books are your way in. And they were mine too. So how are we even considering these orders? I read them over and over and over again, and they're, they're honestly laughable. And to the Navy men who had not yet resigned themselves to the kamikaze fate, they read like a fucked up movie script. That answer to the question why can actually be traced back to just one sentence uttered by the emperor. Now, we've been through this before in a previous episode, so I don't want to belabor the point, but it would be three magic words uttered by Emperor Hirohito that would open the door for this kind of a mission. In reaction to the first stunning success of the kamikaze suicide attacks, he would ask, what about the Navy? Those first kamikaze attacks at Leyte Gulf in October of 44 were meant to be a temporary tide-turning special attack, but they were so gratifying that they won outright imperial approval. Not doing nearly as much damage as they were reported to have done, they were successful at least in part of their aim, to serve as an irresistibly inspiring example for which Japanese warriors should follow. The rigid spine of the Navy was built with prideful, hard-lined Bushido adherents who refused to accept defeat, let alone be outdone by the Flyers. To them, these words from the Emperor essentially called them out. Where is the Navy? 
Of all the firebrand, nationalist, warrior-class diehards who wore admiral stripes in the Imperial Navy, none was more rabid and ready to go down in a blaze of glory than Captain Shinigori Kami. This man was a total Nazi fanboy. He loved and admired the extreme purity and ironclad loyalty that served as the backbone of the Third Reich, even rocking a robust Hitler stash. And at this late stage of the war, he and his death and glory followers were coming totally unhinged. During the development of the plan, he would scream things like, His Imperial Majesty asks, where is the Navy? We cannot evade our responsibilities. The situation calls for something akin to a soldier's bonsai charge. A wild, swinging charge, naval fashion, aimed straight at the enemy's jugular. It's been said that he was boozing heavily at this point, perhaps lending an even more impassioned edge to his argument. The man whom he was trying to sway was Admiral Toyota, now commander of the combined fleet. He had inherited Yamamoto's mantle of responsibility after his tragic demise in Operation Vengeance. You remember, I think 2.50s to the face? Toyota was war-weary, emotionally burdened and buried by an insurmountable pyramid of impossible decisions. In this position emblazoned by Kami, he heard echoes of other hardliners like Onishi and Ugaki, men whose drastic actions had been met with imperial praise. Kami continues his rant. What would we have done in olden times? We would have thrown everything into a do-or-die attack, risked everything on one monumental gamble. Have we all become women? Hark back to history. Evoke the spirit of Togo at Tsushima Bay, of Yamamoto at Pearl Harbor. What we want is a show of spirit, the spirit of our glorious ancestors, the spirit of the Yamato people. The gods will come to our aid. Anyone questioning the notion that courage could make up for a lack of, well, everything, was met with cries of irreligious nonsense and heresy. Fighting against this mix of Bushido heritage and mysticism that makes up the core of a Japanese warrior's soul brought one very dangerously close to treason. Yet, still, there was the honest question of cost-benefit analysis. To which Kami replied, even if there were only a 10% chance of success, the effort would be worthwhile. The true samurai does not ask whether his effort pays off. He is not a Kanto merchant. He merely asks the opportunity to sacrifice himself. The only thing that Toyota knew for sure was that even if defeat was inevitable, that did not make it acceptable. If oblivion was in fact what we are facing, then let the world tremble in awe of our glorious end. Kami would in fact beg to join the Yamato's ultimate mission. There would be no accusing him of preaching anything he would not practice. The morning of April 6th. What a lovely day to die. Beneath blooming cherry trees, drummers beat out a rolling heartbeat. The vibrant pink blossoms float, falling like snow, carpeting the ground as well as settling gently on the shoulders of Admiral Ugaki and his assembled kamikaze pilots, who all stand at stoic attention. 
in his crisp starched uniform, chest dripping with medals and a snow-white cotton-gloved hand resting on the hilt of his katana, Ugaki addresses his men. You are the vanguard of the first stage of a ten-stage attack that will defeat the greatest threat to the survival of the Japanese Empire. Over 2,000 of your brothers-in-arms shall follow you in this honorable task. Remember the carriers. Those are your prime targets. Do not let your enthusiasm mislead you. Do not attack the first ship you see. You men have the honor of annihilating the greatest weapon the invaders have. Aim for the communication towers as you have been taught. Crash with your eyes wide open. Many have done so before you, and they will tell you what fun they had. I invoke the blessings of the gods to speed you on your most noble and sacred task. The pilots listened intently, their white hachimaki scarves tied above their eyes, a tradition handed down to them by their samurai forefathers who used them to keep sweat out of their eyes when they were slashing and hacking each other to death with three-foot razor blade katanas. Their thousand-stitched scarves are tied around their waists, carrying with them the prayers of their families and loved ones who spent months gathering the stitches, each stitch a prayer of hope and confidence in the future hero. But prayers uttered here were not for a safe homecoming, but rather an appeal to the gods to see to it that they land a killing blow to their enemy. No medals would be awarded. No, the true reward for the kamikaze was far, far greater than any mortal aim. It was an honored seat among the glorious dead who haunted the great Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo. This was the everlasting award of deification. Even the emperor himself would bow to them there. All preparations had been made. The hidden planes tuned up, bombs loaded. All that was left was to say farewell. The cherry blossoms fall weightlessly around them, as if in slow motion. These flowers are such an enduring symbol to the Japanese, finding their way onto countless battle flags, the namesake for ancient clans and military units and even human-guided bombs, because once they are separate from the branch, they will never return, only reaching their peak in those fleeting moments as they fall to earth, their beauty intertwined with their finality. Each man raises his cup of water Saki being too undignified for this solemn occasion, Ugaki delivers this toast. I will follow you, he says. We shall meet again in Minotogawa. Minotogawa, the final resting place for Kunsunoki Masashige and his loyal samurai, the Japanese Valhalla for magnificent warrior deities fallen in battle for the sake of the emperor. They drink in unison, salute, and bow. The drummer's tattoo rolls long and low. Now, the final order. Pilots, to your planes. The pilots sprint to their planes while onlookers cheer or sob with emotion, while engines sputter and kick over. Once you leapt into that cockpit and the glass hatch locked home above you, all else faded away. Push the throttle. The propellers roar. Destiny awaits.
One man watching this grim spectacle is our Christian friend, Ichizo Hayashi. He stands in awe, gripping his Bible in hand, hypnotically watching a fate which would soon be his own. In moments, the zeros disappear into the clear blue sky and the ever after. What a beautiful day to die. With that, the largest suicide assault ever launched, 335 kamikazes plus 189 escorts were airborne and on their way to the American fleet. At this point, a perspective change is necessary since we of the living find ourselves at a painful deficit for first-hand accounting from the successful kamikaze. So let's see what's on the other side of this coin. At 0400, the first blush of dawn has not yet bleached the black Pacific sky. A smaller independence-class carrier, the USS Bella Wood, cuts through the inky ocean. Bellawood's 36-man fighter pilot roster gulps coffee and chokes down reconstituted powdered eggs by electric lamplight in the belly of their ship. The bigger Essex-class carriers usually serve steak on a day that projected to be arduous, but the little Bellawood didn't constitute such lavish cuisine. For most of these guys, that was just as well. Especially Michele Mazzocco from Peekskill, New York. Call sign Mad Maz, the boys mostly just called him Maz. Well, he had a habit of leaving breakfast halfway through for a nerve-induced, body-cleansing puke. These fellows are wound pretty damn tight. It wasn't near as bad as the gritty early days when just a handful of experienced pilots were on the stick until they either cracked up or died, but the brass still ground these pilots down to a sharp edge. A Pacific tour was down to just six months being that the Navy training programs were rapidly churning out tons of highly skilled, highly effective pilots. But in that six months, it was absolutely breakneck balls to the wall from dusk till dawn, and daylight lasted about 13 hours at this latitude. When these boys weren't escorting high-altitude bombers, facing hellish flak and AA fire, they were flying close combat support missions in fraught battle zones, buzzing down low-as-snake shit pulverizing Japanese ground forces, blasting away with bullets, bombs, rockets, and cooking their cave-dwelling enemy with napalm. That or they were on endless, mind-numbing overwatch patrols at 27,000 feet in unpressurized cockpits. Sucking on their oxygen masks, they had to tug off their fur-lined gloves every so often to check if their cuticles were turning that warning sign light blue. If so, it was time to come down. Oxygen deficiency could sneak up real quick, causing a pilot to black out and plummet into the sea. Although the brass hated the broken radio silence, the boys relied on lively banter to make sure all hands were tuned in. So yeah, they were wound pretty tight. Airborne at a minimum of 8 or 10 hours day after day after day, a dropped mess tray could cause 10 heads to snap to the noise, ready to dive, barrel roll, or return fire. As the fellas grabbed chow, the addition of baked beans signals there was something brewing. Christ, with the beans already, they're trying to fart us to death? griped Philly, called Philly Deuce in the air. Expanding gas in the intestine at altitude could be absolute misery. Upon first whiff of the bubbling beans, Maz sprints off to puke out his already empty stomach. 
With not a single air base this far out in the Pacific, the entire responsibility of air supremacy came down to these seaborne pilots, launched off their massive mobile warfighting platforms, the aircraft carriers of Task Force 58. These boys are Hellcat pilots, damn good ones, and they knew it. Jap air power simply was not the menace it once was. To quote U.S. pilot Lieutenant Roy Gillespie, a.k.a. Pipe Dream 12, they were sending kids up there with probably less than 50 hours in an airplane. They were brave enough, but half-trained. It didn't demand great skill on our part. The Japs were sitting ducks, but it was just that there were so goddamn many of them swarming all over us. So yeah, you could say they were cocky. But they didn't underestimate the sinister new weapon the Japanese were ready to unleash. As far as the scuttlebutt they were hearing, an all-out kamikaze attack was imminent. The boys of Hellcat Squad Zulu Charlie Delta lounge on folding chairs, ripping butts. The exec officer scribbles maneuvers on the blackboard. The slap of a hardball hitting a leather baseball mitt keeps its metronomic rhythm. Yet, apart from the usual pre-mission tension, it feels like there's a different frequency of electricity in the air. Just then, the Andrews sisters cooing from the radio gives way to a bulletin from Tokyo Rose. Scrambles through the static, landing on some Benny Goodman. Well, that's a relief. She didn't mention anybody from Task Force 58. Quips Ken. Philly spits. I swear to God, that slide jab bitch is gonna get hurt, even if I gotta give it her in the form of a .50 incendiary. I don't know, Philly. If she's a flyer, I bet we'd have shot her down by now. He chucks Ken a fastball, restarting their pre-flight ritual. Could this be the big one? The all-out suicide attack the brass was expecting? Maz chews his gum, a foot tapping nervously in his flight boot, and pops a big pink bubble. Flight group leader Roy Gillespie checks his watch. It's just about 0500. That's when the squawk box lights up. Radar recon has bogeys inbound. In moments, pilots are diving into flight suits, the air crewmen clanking down steel ladders. On the deck, propellers kick over and roar to life. Ken pops Philly with a good luck headbutt before parting to their growling Hellcats. Although this is a drill they could all do in their sleep, anytime you left that runway, there was no guarantee of coming back. And so many didn't. Maz spits out his chewing gum, gives a thumbs up to his grounds crew, and they slam home the cockpit hatch. Gillespie's voice crackles through the radio. This is Pipe Dream 12 for Zulu, Charlie, Delta. All right, fellas, here we go again. 
Engines howl. The runway crews wave all clear, and in minutes, 16 of aircraft carrier Bellawood's oil-streaked Hellcats are airborne. Their strategy was that of the defensive ring. With carrier fighter patrols circling for intercept at heights of 27, 17, 10, and 5,000 feet, no matter what altitude the intruders went for, they were going to run into something. It was simple. Hit them before they can hit you. In the words of General Sherman, offense is the best defense. Gillespie, Maz, Philly, and Ken had floor duty at 5,000 feet. It's another perfect Pacific day, big puffy cumulus clouds like cotton candy. The US fleet looks like slow gray whales down below. Radio chatter in their headset crackles, warning about intruders inbound. At about 50 miles out, flight leader Gillespie spots the first bogey. A lone converted bomber, already looking guilty, trying to hide by dipping in and out of cloud cover. Target fucking acquired. This is it, ladies and gents. The showdown above the high seas. Cowboys versus Kamikaze. Hey, uh, this is Philly Deuce for Pipe Dream 12. Mind if I pick a fight? Over. This is Pipe Dream 12 for Philly Deuce. That's a good copy or last. Batter up. Appreciate it, boss. Philly swings up and over, gets behind, sights the bogey, and flames him. With his Hellcats 6 50 caliber guns tuned to converge at 1,000 feet and every fifth round coming out an incendiary, in one three-second burst, the bogey's fuel tanks erupt into orange flame and plunges. That's one for you. Cadillac 10 confirms. That's a good hit, Philly. Over. Roger, roger. Good hit. Now come the Zeros, about 30 strong. Maz clocks the big red meatballs on their wings. Gillespie tally hoses boys to the incoming marks. Bogey's incoming. 8 o'clock high. Look sharp. Time for the wolves to hunt. The bad guys split into mirrored pairs, breaking up in all directions in a clean, quick, coordinated attack maneuver. These sure as shit ain't kamikaze. Gotta be the escorts, sent to clear the path. These in fact were the only vets left in Japanese air power. Aces, every damn one of them. Samurai with wings, and they were spoiling for a fight. Pipe Dream 12 for Philly. You're 9 o'clock, Vector 210. Right break, over. Roger, Pipe Dream 12. I'm a-getting. Mad Maz, you with me? Copy, Philly. With you. All of a sudden, Maz finds himself in a zooming, twisting dogfight. Planes are everywhere. Golden tracers chasing evading airplanes. Flash of roaring blue and white as a buddy dives across his field of vision. The chatter in his ears overwhelms. A thousand voices calling targets. Panicked cries for help. The elated cry of Got him! Lead shreds aluminum. Engines scream. Airplanes dance over the flat blue floor like dragonflies flitting over a pond. Maz calms his breathing, wrenches the stick, and gets into the scrum. Almost instantly finding a bogey in range, but as he chases, he catches a flashing glimpse of an enemy in his rear view. Shock zaps his brain into instinct. He slams the stick, twists, trying to shake him, but he's on him like white on rice. He dives, screeching for his red line of 435 knots. At 400, a zero would literally come apart at the seams, but Maz would have to outrace him before he got shredded. The engine howls, 
This is gonna be close. Tracers flash from the Zero's muzzle, zipping balls of red-hot hate creeping, clawing closer. Shit, this is it. When? The Zero bursts in his rear view, tumbling into twisted metal. Panting, Maz pulls out of his dive. Oh, hey, Mad Maz. You're welcome there, fella. Chirps Philly into the headset. Maz yanks off his sweat filled goggles and wipes his eyes. All right, damn it. Let's get into this fight. Maz throttles and pulls his stick, catching his vents in the air, and rolls back into the melee. From above, he spots a zero coming out of a wide turn and angles to get the jump on him. The moment the bogey centers in his glowing electronic gun sights, he squeezes. Screaming lead shreds. The zero pops like popcorn with just a three-second burst. Maz's blood fills with exhilaration. That's right, he almost forgot. He was good at this. Another Zero approaches his sights. He hones in as if magnetized. He's real fucking good at this. Now we're dancing, you sons of bitches. Maz curls, spotting a bogey on Philly's tail. He climbs, then rolls, sights, overcorrecting just a bit and opens up. Leading the mark just enough, he lets him fly into his stream of tracers, shredding his wing clean off like a buzzsaw. The bogey twists spasmodically, cartwheeling and splashing in the white spray below. I owe you that one, Philly! Screams Maz. Philly flips him the bird and peels off. He's hungry for more. Maz spots another bogey at five o'clock. Already smoking, he maneuvers for the kill. The Zero spots Maz coming for him and zooms into a wide, low turn. Maz dives and banks, trying to stick with him, fighting to line him up. The ocean below rapidly rushes up to meet them. The Zero speeds. Both planes bend in the turn, nearing 350 knots, wrenching hard not to splash down. It feels like Maz's ass is gonna rip right through the seat he's pulling so much G-force. Shit, Shit, this, this boy, boy can fly. fly. I can't get the shot. Fuck it, I'll get him when he comes out of this. Maz pulls off and throttles back to get some distance, but... Wait, what the fuck? Where the hell is he? He didn't come out. He kept pulling around. Suddenly, Maz spots the Zero, diving down from above, charging directly at him. Maz lines him up with his gun sight and squeezes with all he's got. Tracer is sliced through, but... Fuck me, I'm out! Bullets just ain't enough to stop this elephant charging at 400 knots. Maz's whole spine shivers. He now realizes, this boy doesn't mean to die alone. He's gonna ram me. This is his death dive. He means to take me with him. Any way he turns, he's got him. The Zero screams downward, propeller buzzing, engine vomiting red flame. This is a smoke-wreathed winged manifestation of his doom. Maz feels his heart throb in his throat. He can only wait until the ultimate instant. His enemy grows larger and larger. Time expands. Maz's eyes widen. In frame-by-frame frame slow motion, Maz can now see the man in the other cockpit. His pink, blood-stained teeth gritted, 
hurtling towards him hundreds of miles an hour. He is playing a game of chicken with a screaming, bleeding weapon of divine fury made mortal flesh. Maz can only guess right or die. In this frozen moment, the gulf between these two creatures seems so wide. Their ideology, their history, their lineage, their hopes, their beliefs, their gods. But at the very same time, they are all too painfully similar. This is a most perfect expression of man in his most extreme form. Eons of evolution, years of technological achievement, all the while self-designing and becoming the most efficient killing vessel. This is humanity staring at a gruesome reflection of itself, a funhouse mirror bouncing back infinite iterations of killers on both ends of the spectrum. Now as their living bodies close the distance to cold, black death, Jacks the throttle and rips the stick. Slamming his back to the seat, his Hellcat breaks into a shuddering vertical jackknife, causing the Zero to miss by a hair's breadth fraction of a degree. In that split second, the Bogus propeller shreds off his belly fuel tank while Maz's propeller chomps through the Zero's tail. The Zero spins out of control, unable to correct his nosedive. Maz twists his head catching a final glimpse of his enemy as he plunges into oblivion. Maz breathes for the first time, now gulping sweet air. He's alive. He guessed right, and he's alive. The sky is suddenly empty. Squad leader Gillespie crackles in his headset and swings up next to him. Pipe Dream 12 for Mad Maz. You still with us? Over. Shaking, drenched in icy sweat, Maz manages to give a thumbs up. Good copy. You got chewed up pretty good there, buddy. How about me? Over. Maz looks over Gillespie's ragged Hellcat. It looks like it's been through a goddamn shark attack. Huge chunks chomped out of both wings. The sputtering engine coughs gray-black smoke. Uh, not so good. But you'll make it home. Roger, roger. After you, Lieutenant. That's right. They still had to make it back home after all that. As the Swiss cheese squad limps back to the Bella Wood, the flat top is already crawling with emergency crews, medics, and firefighters scrambling to catch their battered brethren. Now feeling the ugly shaking and shuddering of his flying wreck, Maz prepares to ease down as gently as he can. His wheels squeal as he hits the runway, his landing hook scraping to snag the arrestor cable. It catches, but bursts free, whiplashing Maz in the cockpit. With way too much speed and momentum, his Hellcat somersaults into an ugly tangle, flipping and skidding, now inverted across the runway, sending landing crews diving. His plane plows on, rapidly running out of runway, with Maz trapped inside helplessly bracing. Still strapped in, the world around him rushes past, wrong side up. The beast finally grinds to a stop, halting half-hung off the carrier's stern. Deck crews scramble, hacking through the cockpit glass with axes and crowbars. 
Maz's straps are slashed, and he drops free like an elephant shit, crashing onto the blessed asphalt, just as his mangled Hellcat tips over, dropping 65 feet and splashing into the choppy sea. Panting, flat on his back, Maz spots Gillespie's plane as it crash lands, hitting hard and exploding into a blaze of orange flame. On pure instinct, Maz is up and sprinting to the wreck alongside frantic deck crews. Gillespie is able to dive out while asbestos-clad firemen soak him in the flaming ruin. Maz yanks him up and away, and the two limp clear of the runway as yet another Hellcat pancakes down in its ugly homecoming. That was the first day of Kikasui. Pilots from Bellawood were credited with 36 kills, four of which belonged to 21-year-old Mikeli Mazoko. These boys fought and lived because they were damn good pilots and their magnificently made American machines could take one hell of a good beating and still get them home. They were done for the moment, but this was just an intermission. Every pilot able would be back up tomorrow morning bright and early. And, try as they might, they didn't catch every kamikaze. The divine wind was still in the air. USS Bush and Calhoun were part of the easternmost radar picket, protecting the vulnerable transport ships ferrying men and supplies back and forth from the besieged island of Okinawa. Both mid-sized Fletcher-class destroyers, they had a handful of 5-inch guns, a few 40mm and 20mm cannons, but were hardly an entree-sized target compared to a juicy battleship or the coveted carrier. Warned to expect air attack, and with nothing more to do than wait and see, tension hangs above the ship like a guillotine's blade. In an effort to lighten it, some wise-ass sailors had repurposed some camel paint and were now scrawling, quote, carriers this way in huge white letters across the deck. Just out of visual range, Maz, Philly, and the Hellcat boys were tangling with a more than 250-strong kamikaze swarm. And as good as they did, they just couldn't catch them all. For any enemy that did survive, this easternmost picket was the next thing in their flight path. The wise-ass sailors on Bush were just finishing up a nice bright arrow pointing towards the main fleet, content that they'd never be seen as a worthy target compared to all the other fish in the fleet. This strong dose of gallows humor echoed every sailor's prayers that, out of all the U.S. targets floating around the island of Okinawa, they would be spared by the dreaded kamikaze. But fate is a cruel bitch, and for some godforsaken reason, the USS Bush had drawn her fury. The radio shack now lights up, buzzing reports of intercepted kamikaze raiders now reported inbound. When you make contact, Suddenly the warning sirens wail. Enemy sighted on the horizon. Showtime. Gunners lock and load, rosaries are kissed and chin straps buckled. An old salty navy man spits a black brown rope of tobacco, muttering, time to swap flies. 
Screams of, here they come, from spotters on the conning tower echo across the ship's deck. Menacing black beads now populate the blue sky. As the raiders come in range, Bush's big five-inch guns open up, blasting fat black bursts of flak. The enemy presses onward. Now the 40-millimeter cannons are in range and open up, streaking orange tracers towards the enemy. Yet the raiders forge on undeterred, heading directly into the maelstrom. That's how you knew it was kamikaze. They just kept coming. Now close enough for the twin 20 millimeters, they add their staccato rat-a-tat to the lethal chorus. The enemy presses onward. A heavy, ordnance-laden Aichi dive bomber catches lead but grimly stays on target. She's coming in hot. Ain't nothing gonna stop her now. In the wail of her death dive, she screams down on the little destroyer. With every muzzle barking, gun crews grit their teeth and desperately stuff shells into smoking feed trays, trying to muscle through their task and ignore the plunging banshee above. Wild-eyed gun crew commanders scream at their men to keep firing, damn it! The black smoke trailing Aichi takes another hit, hot lead catching its low-hung 550-pound bomb, and she explodes in midair. The momentum throwing flaming debris across the deck and into the gun tubs. A zero eats a fat five-inch shell and explodes into fragments. Another's wing is shredded off. She spins wildly out of control and splashes down just 20 yards from their deck. A starboard side 20-millimeter gunner locks a charging Nakajima bomber in his spider rug gun sight. Pumping round after round, the bullets chopping through the engine and cockpit, blasting the pilot into an all-red Pollock painting. The plane roars overhead, skimming just feet above the deck, clipping off one of its fixed landing gear on the aft gun turret and explodes on the opposite side. They're putting up a hell of a screen. The 20-millimeter gun tub erupts into cheers, but it's cut short as they spot a fourth raider, screaming inbound, too close to adjust. It's too late. The kamikaze buries its nose directly between the bushes' smokestacks and erupts into a massive fireball. Without a beat, the next kamikaze wave is spotted. Bush desperately hails her sister ship, the USS Calhoun, for help. Calhoun kicks her engines and races to put her guns between Bush and the incoming swarm. Sidling up broadside, her five-inch batteries are already spitting flame. The second kamikaze wave storms down like charging cavalry, while the combined cannonade of Calhoun and Bush put up their furious riposte. One incoming kamikaze catches fire and spins out. Another's tail is sheared off, loses control, and splashes down. A whistling shell from Bush's five-incher blasts another into blazing skyburst. But as they close, the big guns aren't able to keep up at the short range. In the chaos, a Tenzin torpedo bomber manages to sneak around port side through the lead curtain and hits. Scything through one of Calhoun's 40-millimeter gun tubs, killing the entire gun crew and spraying burning airplane fuel across the deck. 
defused on bombs erupt amidships in a shattering crash. Now, with the two sisters both critically hit, they engage emergency steering and brace for yet another incoming wave. Right now, every single man on those ships is thinking the same thing. For Christ's sake, why us? And that was a damn good question. You heard the kamikaze pilot's orders from Ugaki upon embarking on this sacred mission. Quote, the carriers are your target. Do not let enthusiasm get the better of you. Just what the fuck are these guys doing? Why are they wasting such precious lives and planes on two little minnows? At this point, both ships were out of action. They had done enough damage. The raiders could have moved on to any other targets, but no. It seems that fate was dead set on motherfucking the poor fellas on Bush and Calhoun. Perhaps for sharks like these, there's just something all too alluring about the scent of blood in the water. Calhoun struggles to maneuver as best she can as Bush limps by her side. The two sisters gamely raise their barrels to the sky and do all in their power to fight off the incoming swarm. And the scene was utterly horrifying. The ships are blazing, men with boiled flesh writhe in agony. Calhoun's blood-soaked oil street gunners desperately fire on, swatting down two more kamikazes, but a third smashes into their starboard side. The bomb blast opening up a 20-foot hole in her hull. The boilers explode, the keel is snapped, the sea pours in. Even with her five-inch guns jammed, Bush still puts up a gallant fight. These navy boys never did say die. But a third direct hit cleaves her main deck directly between the stacks, just about severing the ship in two. Her ammunition catches fire, popping like popcorn. Her own torpedoes and depth charges erupt. She begins to cave in on herself. Meanwhile, as the Calhoun desperately tries to stay afloat, yet another kamikaze makes her bridge his funeral pyre. The fourth blow was to be the killing stroke. Almost simultaneously, just a few nautical miles away, destroyers Lutz and Newcomb were echoing the same cries of, Why us? They too had been forsaken by fate. Newcomb is crushed by four direct hits in just 11 minutes. One Aichi, with her pilot dead at the stick, plows on like a zombie and stabs into her bridge, adding a full tank of gasoline to the raging inferno. Minesweeper USS Emmons too is pincushioned by five strikes before finally slipping under the waves. The remaining kamikaze force was now finally in range of the vulnerable transport ships at Higushi Beach, the US's main landing site at Okinawa, just a few miles away from the infamous Hacksaw Ridge. Although just five of the original raiders were able to make it this far, just the sound alone of these dreaded foes sent the entire beachhead into a frenzy. Every last gun, from anti-aircraft flak to the non-com officer's Colt 45 pistol, anything that spits lead opens up in a terrified, undisciplined cacophony. And in that insanity, the marine gunners managed to splash down four suiciders and scare off the fifth, as well as peppering their own ships in some friendly planes. And for good measure, they kept on firing for a full half an hour before they could finally be brought to heel. 
the Marines were understandably jumpy. Standing out in the open on the beach, utterly naked with buzzing propellers ripping down on them, they hated the kamikaze. They knew what it was like to face this inhuman foe in the jungle. They'd been burning them out of bunkers, fighting tooth and nail hand to hand in the swamps, facing katana swinging crazed bonsai charges, but they had hitherto always been able to stare these monsters in the eyes. This was something else. And when a marine wants something dead, they make for damn sure. Nah, these boys wouldn't be taking any fucking chances. They'd be just fine shooting until their guns melted. Just think of that adrenaline-soaked relief when the skies above your head finally cleared. Standing shoulder to shoulder with your buddy, the flick of a zippo, a shaking hand bringing a smoldering, unfiltered lucky strike to your lips. Damn, that must taste good. Although Marine Corsair pilots slaughtered no less than 20 enemies targeting the beach areas, minesweepers, supply ships, and more still fell victim to the kamikaze. One stricken landing ship packed with fuel burned like a torch for a full 24 hours. As the sun dipped below the horizon, the blazing ship stained the sky a ghostly orange, allowing the marines on the beach to gaze out at this glowing reminder of the price paid for their safety. By morning, the bodies of dead sailors were washing up on the beach, hammering the point home. By nightfall, Japanese pilots who'd been tasked with flying observation were beginning to return to base. Admiral Ugaki stubs out his 9,000th cigarette of the day to receive one badly burned lieutenant commander. Refusing medical treatment before delivering his report, the young pilot does his best to recall the day's battle. He speaks of an insane dogfight, his squad jumped by ravenous hellcats and corsairs, his own flesh scorched in the melee, smoking American battleships below, carriers under attack, a sky full of flaming planes. As he begins to sway from pain and exhaustion, Ugaki sends him off to medical. Ugaki could only rely on the blurred, pieced together memories of surviving scouts and spotters to figure out just what the hell happened out there today. As this bloody jigsaw comes together, it seemed that damage had been done. He himself had been straining to listen to frantic radio transmissions all day. Catching clipped snippets of raiders radioing, I am crashing on an enemy carrier, mixed with a thousand communications in English, screaming for help, reporting they were under attack. From this picture, Ugaki needed no more convincing. From all reports, the sea around Okinawa had been turned into a scene of unparalleled carnage. Dispelled of any lingering doubts, he greenlights tomorrow's renewed siege. However, it would have to be more focused, he concludes. Strike further south. And perhaps even Army Commander Ushijima, currently dug in on Okinawa, would finally launch his goddamn attack. Suddenly, the weight of the day's events feels so heavy. Ugaki swoons in exhaustion. Eighteen hours of agonizing suspense and worry finally catches up. 
Ugaki had sent so many heroic, beautiful sons of Japan to their death today. The rear admiral takes a gulp of scotch and turns his eyes to the makeshift barracks housing tomorrow's wave of pilots. His heart was truly with them. As they slept now so innocently, the hour of their death was rapidly approaching. Among tomorrow's pilots was Admiral Ito's own son. At dawn, he would lead the suicide attacks designed to make way for his father's massive battleship. How poetic, reflects Ugaki, that they may die fighting together. He stares blankly at the barracks, gripping his scotch, hoping that this romantic notion might inspire the stanzas of his deathbed haiku, but no words would come. Inside the battered old schoolhouse barracks, Ichizo Hayashi lies awake, wishing that sleep would claim him. He looks across the gloom, studying the bundles of personal effects that had belonged to today's sacrificed pilots, now neatly stacked in bundles, along with farewell letters, all awaiting dispatch to bereaved families. Counting the unoccupied, shaggy straw mattresses of those who took off this morning, never to return, was a poor substitute for counting sheep. Giving up on sleep altogether, Ichizo pulls out his diary and begins to write. Quote, it is easy to think of death in the abstract as the ancient philosophers did, but it is real death that I fear. Boys just like me are wearing Japanese uniforms and killing infants and innocent civilians in China, but there is no more time for me to escape. He finds the photograph of his mother tucked into the pages of his Bible. Looking at the worn, creased image, trying to recall the smell of home, he continues. Tomorrow, I am no longer alive. Those who flew today are all dead. It does not feel real. I wonder if I will be allowed to enter heaven. Mother, please pray for me. I cannot bear the thought of going to a place where you will not join me later. All is in God's hands now. Admiral Ugaki, too, would not sleep tonight. Back in his quarters, he lights up another cigarette and rereads the freshly printed transcript just handed to him by a steward. It simply says, Yamato has set sail on schedule. Just like the coming dawn, what was now in motion could not be stopped. In reality, the results of the first day of Kikasui were far more painful for the Japanese. Of the more than 700 aircraft, kamikazes and escorts, including the very best, most experienced pilots, they managed only to sink three destroyers, two ammunition ships, a minesweeper, and a landing ship. Of the more than 15 other severely damaged U.S. vessels, every one of them would be replaced, repaired, and many returned to action. 200 U.S. sailors and airmen were killed and 260 were wounded. Although no loss of American life is counted as small, compare this to the no less than 380 kamikazes lost. That's 380 men plus 300 precious aircraft. That is a painfully high cost that could never be justified by the virtually non-existent results. Yet that's not to say that there was not opportunity here. And 
It's just hard to fathom why the kamikazes threw their lives away, crippling and killing cruisers and destroyers, especially when they had express orders not to. Some of these flyers were from the army, so maybe their ship spotting and recognition ability was subpar, but that's hardly an excuse. I mean, how the fuck does this even happen? Look at Bush and Calhoun. More than 10 or 15 planes sacrificed to beat the shit out of two mid-sized cruisers? It's utterly baffling and tragic and a shameful waste. Of those that did make it within smelling distance of the juicy battleships and carriers, it's hard to believe they had much of a chance anyway. The U.S. boys were damn good flyers. The very best. They had great radar, every Japanese code was broken, they knew they were coming. And what passed for most of the Japanese pilots at this stage were little more than amateurs flying planes so heavily loaded with explosives they were barely even maneuverable. It was easy meat for the Navy. Nearly all that was left of the fearsome Japanese veteran aces was spent in this last big push. And of those, the Japanese were not making more of. Pretty soon, the Japanese would be loading ordnance onto training aircraft and filling the cockpits with boys who hardly had a snowball's chance in hell. So, rather than trying for the best protected targets in the U.S. Navy, what could they have done? With historical hindsight being 2020, the best target would have been the U.S. supply lines. These were barely defended, virtually wide freaking open when compared to hard targets like carriers and battleships. Endless lines of tankers and ammo and supply ships all clumped together strewn across the Pacific. They could have had them popping like popcorn. Severing these vital, hard-to-protect lines of supply could have had huge ramifications on the attritional siege of Okinawa. But alas, the first, most potent and dangerous phase of Operation Kikasui had shot its bolt. U.S. carrier-borne aircraft and the men behind the stick had proven that the best defense was a killer offense. The 26 airborne slayers from Bellawood scored 47 kills on that day alone. The boys from carrier USS Essex took the high score, tallying 65 kills, but they were going up with Corsairs, and that's almost like cheating at this point. As a whole, the pilots of Task Force 58 downed a stunning total of 249 enemies on that single fateful day. These are the men that broke the greatest kamikaze raid ever, and in doing so, they were making the case that air power was the most important and dangerous part of the Navy. Remember, there is no such thing as an air force at this point. But the fight was not over. Every flyer who was able would be back in the sky in less than six hours. Operation Tenichi was just warming up. As she leaves the oil depot at Kure Harbor, Yamato has had what amounts to be a last supper of the damned. Her tanks now hold 4,000 tons of fuel, more than double than what was ordered. Being that this was truly meant to be a one-way mission, only 2,000 tons were supposed to be issued. However, supply officers secretly and defiantly sent men laddering down into the massive subterranean reserve tanks, putting siphons below the official pump depth and giving Yamato and her escorts at least a fighting chance to survive the ordeal. Now at least, they would have enough fuel for those gas-guzzling high-speed combat maneuvers she was destined to employ. Perhaps those benevolent supply officers reasoned if the fighting got too hot, this would at least allow Yamato a way to escape and maybe even survive, 
But in stark reality, this was a sweet but totally futile gesture. Giving her this fuel really only drank from their precious dwindling reserves. The entire oil supply at Kure, which once held something like 3 million tons, was now down to little more than 15,000. Shit, the U.S. fleet off Okinawa consumed more than that every 24 hours. And regardless of what damage Yamato could deal, this paltry offer of extended life was not going to see her making it back. As Yamato's executive officer Nomura felt the giant behemoth lurch beneath his feet, he strangely felt a pang of guilt. He was essentially stealing fuel, forging paperwork so high command would be none the wiser, but this was a crime that he would never be held accountable for. Yet, that's not really why he felt guilty. The Corey supply officers were foolish for even gifting it to them. The whole damn thing was foolish. What he felt guilty for was, with this being the last drops of the impossible-to-make-or-find high-octane oil, how was the Imperial Japanese military to fend off the invaders with dry tanks? Perhaps, he wondered ruefully, in the end it would in fact come to, as the propagandists would have him say, fighting with nothing but bamboo poles if the Emperor so decrees. As she weighed anchor, the harbor shrinking behind her, Yamato took with her on this one-way, insane mission of futility some of the last vital lifeblood the Empire was counting on for the final defense of the mainland. It was all so foolish. Nonetheless, morale on the ship was magnificently high in its own surreal Kafka-esque way. Yamato cuts the glistening inland sea of Japan, now passing Kagoshima Bay, which is essentially sacred ground for the sailors as well as the admirals on board. This is the ancestral home of one of the great samurai families, the Shimazu clan. Being the first to adapt firearms into their arsenal, they would lure enemies into well-laid ambushes and unleash their fearsome technological advantage of flintlock arquebuses. With the crack of muskets sowing confusion and death, the Shimazu clan was able to overcome much larger enemies on their road to the complete conquest of Kyushu. The Shimazu tradition of using surprise and technology was later echoed as Admiral Yamamoto developed here the concept for carrier-mounted, fast airborne attack. It was in the very backyard of these ancient warriors that Imperial torpedo bombers plotted and planned their most infamous surprise attack, using the similarly situated harbor as practice grounds for their bombing runs on Pearl Harbor's battleship row. Kagoshima was actually the birthplace of the Imperial Japanese Navy in the 1860s, as well as their greatest hero, Togo. We touched on this legendary character earlier, Known as the Horatio Nelson of the Orient, he was the man who vaulted the Japanese Navy to the world stage when he bested the Russians at the Battle of Tsushima Bay. If you haven't yet, swing back to episode 3. Check it out. It's a pretty interesting rabbit hole. As Yamato slips through the shimmering reflection of the fabled volcanic Mount Sakurajima, sailors on deck bow in reverence. Not only in deference to the great Shimatsu Samurai and the hallowed birthplace of the Imperial Japanese Navy, but from this point on, with the southernmost tip of Japan behind them, what lie ahead was only the open sea. This was their last chance to say farewell to their beloved homeland. An old salt yells out to the young sailors, Take a good look! It's the last time you'll ever see it. A young voice cries back. 
Drop dead, old fool. Nobody can sink the Yamato. Little did they know, they were already being hunted. With his binoculars practically stabbed into his eye sockets, Captain John Foote scans the horizon from the conning tower of submarine USS Threadfin. Part of a three-submarine group, not quite a wolf pack, Threadfin sits at the mouth of the Bungo Strait, making damn sure he would be in position to catch anything heading out for the open sea. He and his crew watch a steady stream of minesweepers, patrol boats, and other little fish, allowing them to pass into the night. With all this anti-submarine activity, he knows something's up. The calm sea slaps against their gray hull in that it's quiet, too quiet kind of tension of anticipation. That's when the skipper hears hollering down below deck, which could only mean one thing, radar hits. He scrambles down the slick iron ladder and into the belly of his undersea beast. In the red gloom, men make way as the skipper tears down the skinny tunnel to the bridge and jumps behind his radar op, now willing his eyes to adjust to the green and red glow of the instrument panel. He stares at the tiny scope with bated breath as the radar beam sweeps across, refreshing itself as it comes back around clockwise. A clump of green dots flash on the scope. There it is, sir. 5.3 miles at 25 knots. I see it, growls the skipper, fixated on the mystery blips. Definitely something, and this ain't minesweepers or patrol boats. After 23 days at sea, maybe this is what they've been waiting for all along. The radar refreshes on its sweep. Five fat pings glow in the scope. The skipper's eyes light up. This was something big. Showtime. The skipper belts out the magic words. Stand by, stand by. Mark and dive. Launching all hands into action, diesel engines roar to life. Watertight doors slam home and ratchet close. The scope blips again. As the targets approach, the green blobs on the radar have split into at least eight somethings. Typical formation. Cruisers and destroyers plowing on the flanks, screening for something big in the center. The skipper stares intently, expecting that big something in the center to break up into smaller pips upon further radar dissemination, but it doesn't. This was something really big. It had to be a carrier or... Just then, the targets cut course, enacting the prescribed, hard-to-follow defensive zigzag, sending them off and away with speed. It would be tough to keep up, but the skipper was game. He orders Threadfin up to a shallow 100 feet, screaming for... More speed! and readies to strike. In the mad scramble to keep the targets in range and set up his shot, the skipper nearly forgot his orders. He had to get clearance for any offensive action from naval headquarters back at Pearl Harbor. He scribbles a sit-rep action request and sends it off running down two flights of stairs to be coded and shot off to Pearl. With his hands momentarily tied, he and his crew muscle to keep the constantly fluctuating equation of range, speed, depth, and bearing solved in order to shoot off a torpedo which will travel several miles and still hit home. The targets were finishing their zig, their angle now bending back, sending the zag directly back towards Threadfin. The setup was going to be perfect. Clear all tubes. Boys, this is a shooting observation. Let's give it to them where the sun don't shine. Two, three, four, ready, sir. Shooting observation. All tubes clear and ready, sir. Fire control calls out. Ready to shoot, sir. The word sends shivers down the spines of the whole crew. The skipper roars into the intership comm to the radio room. Where's the goddamn clearance from Pearl? Jammed up, sir. I'm sending urgent. Hit them again, damn it. 
With an eye glued to the periscope, the skipper looks past the smaller silhouettes and at the massive black floating mountain just 5,000 yards away. The words, answer, damn you, answer, becoming his clenched tooth mantra. They had the shot. So shoot, damn it. In another couple of seconds, the targets would zig again, their radical turn sending them away too fast and at too sharp an angle for Threadfin to keep up. Sir, they're turning again. Hold course. Give me more speed. 25 knots. Open her up. The skipper curses his infernal orders. He could do nothing but hold his punch and try to keep up, his chance at the Hall of Fame quickly slipping away. Every man held his breath, hoping for the best. Sir, we're being pinged. Destroyer breaking off and closing at speed. That was it. The jig was up. Son of a bitch. Put our stern to her. God damn it. Diesel engines howl again, the whole ship tremoring as they crash dive and torque into an evasive maneuver. In moments, Threadfin is plunged deep into the abyss and out of danger, but in doing so, they've lost contact with their quarry. That's when the skipper is handed a transcript from Pearl reading, Fire permission granted. Order to submit pre-attack requests revoked. Son of a bitch. Not only were they granted permission to fire, but now they didn't even have to ask for permission anymore. And that fucking chance of having a more open, more perfect shot at the biggest damn trophy of the war. This maybe with a few perfect, super lucky, guided by God's own hand, direct torpedo hits could have been the end of Yamato right then and there. After all, her sister battleship Musashi, as well as the biggest aircraft carrier of all time, the Shinano, they were each brought down by these unseen menaces beneath the waves. U.S. submarines were, if anything, underused and underappreciated. I've seen reports that, if solely concentrated on cutting off shipping, supply, and material flow, the Japanese could have been completely strangled, just literally choked out nearly a full year earlier, possibly even negating the costly assaults at Iwo Jima and Okinawa, but who knows. Alas, Skipper John Foote would never catch his white whale, but that something big, which could only be Yamato, had officially been spotted and relayed. Her location and heading sent directly to HQ at Pearl, this signal was more valuable and more damning than any of Threadfin's torpedoes ever could have hoped to have been. So as fate would decree, ignominious death by an unseen undersea hand was hardly the epic showdown that Yamato was destined for. And hell, if I didn't know better, a healthy little conspiracy theory would be that the admirals at Pearl were holding back permission for submarine skippers to strike on purpose. By now, they know Yamato's coming, and as far as they were concerned, she was too big a prize for just one lowly submarine captain to claim. No, there was glory to be had and legacies to be written. The race to kill Yamato would in fact punctuate one of the great military rivalries of all time. The old-school Navy battleship boys versus these nouveau-lethal carrier-launched airmen. With Threadfin's report that the Yamato was steaming out of the Bungo Strait and heading to sea, even the stoic, measured logician Admiral Raymond Spruance couldn't help but fantasize. Spruance was old school. He was old breed, included in the camp of the far more brash and bombastic Admiral Bull Halsey. These were battleship men. This breed of Navy old salt was currently wrestling with the new reality that battleships were no longer the go-to battering ram war winner that they had once been. 
the concept of battle wagons blasting away in those heavyweight ship-to-ship duels, that dates all the way back to 1588, when Sir Francis Drake challenged the whole damn Spanish Armada to a toe-to-toe slugfest on the high seas. However, with the advent of modern air power, those days were done. By World War II, Spruance, Halsey, and their massive mobile gun platforms mainly aimed their barrels exclusively at land targets. Now, as ship after enemy ship fell to carrier-borne aircraft, their role was quickly being eclipsed. Proud fellas like these fucking hated it, stoking rivalry and resentment between the old salts and these new, glamorous flyboys. Now, with Japan's very last and most fearsome battleship ringing the war bell, Spruance immediately orders the carriers of Task Force 58 to stand down. He was the man holding the reins, and he knew this was truly the last chance for that one final good old Nelsonian ship-to-ship showdown. Claiming that he didn't want the flyboys to take the pedal off the metal in crushing resistance and supporting the invasion of Okinawa, he activates the battleships of Task Force 57, thus setting the stage for the final big ship duel in history. But little did he know, Admiral Mark Mitcher had designs of his own. Clenched in his shaking fist was Spruance's orders to stand down. To hell with the battleships, he growled. Mitcher, the man codenamed Bald Eagle and affectionately called Old Baldy, but only went out of earshot, was a leather-faced, bird-of-prey-looking, rough-and-tumble acolyte of the Church of Air Power. He had spent the whole of his naval career developing and championing the role of carrier-launched aircraft as the most effective weapon in the naval arsenal. Hell, it was off of Mitcher's own carrier, the USS Hornet, that Jimmy Doolittle launched the very first U.S. offensive air attack of the war. I'm sure you've heard of the Doolittle raid. He was tired of the goddamn battleship boys and their backward thinking that bogged down naval doctrine from the top echelons down. He was absolutely convinced that his flyers were the perfect weapon to fulfill Yamato's death wish. For years, he had been saying that the future of naval warfare was carrier-borne. Well, that future was now. He now saw the moment in which to prove, once and for all, the concept that he had staked his entire reputation on. Air power outclassed the battleship. With his blood-hot and mind racing, he storms onto the bridge of his flagship carrier, USS Bunker Hill, and summons every one of his intelligence men to conference on the double. As the bridge fills, Mitcher gets a lucky strike smoldering, and fixes his boys with an icy blue-eyed stare and asks, What have we got available? His men are stunned. But only for a moment. They shared the same feeling of, This is bullshit, when the stand-down order came through. On Mitcher's word, the fuses of their logistical minds are lit. His military think tank now whips together a plan of attack that would put his carriers in position to intercept Yamato. As pins and course plots populate the map chart, it looks like he's got about three out of four task groups available, tallying up to a grand total of about a dozen carriers and more than 900 planes. But he could only take a piece of that with which to blitz the incoming Japanese attack force. The trick was, he couldn't leave the boys on Okinawa to the wolves. They were dependent on his wings, not only for vital air support and conquest of the island, but to provide the defensive air screen protecting the island. In light of yesterday's unprecedented kamikaze attacks, if the Japs had another one of those up their sleeves, and Mitcher's flyboys were miles off against orders chasing some Moby Dick-sized battleship, the suiciders could easily crash through and wreak serious fucking havoc. And if that were to come to pass, 
the axe would fall squarely on Mitra's neck. This was going to be quite a gamble. As his intel officers chop up the situation into phrases qualified with probably and most likely and willing to bet, Mitra grows impatient, feeling the tectonic plates of history shifting beneath his feet. When another transcript from Spruance, ordering the surface fleet to ready for action is passed to Mitra, he slams his fist on the table and screams, So just what the hell can we do? As it stood right now, Mitcher and his Task Force 58 were too far off to launch anything. Not only were his planes out of range, they could only guess what route Yamato would take. Although Mitcher was willing to bet that she'd pull a play out of the classic Japanese naval playbook and make her final run at Okinawa under the Shroud of Night and then hit hard like a bolt from hell in the murky pre-dawn gloom, there was just too many variables. His prime directive was to support the Okinawa operation. Any step away from the island would be in direct contradiction of his orders. He was going to have to do both things at once. He'd have to sneak his carriers as far away as he dared while still keeping a boot on Okinawa's neck and then launch his planes at where he hoped Yamato would appear. And for his flyers, this meant they would be attacking from their absolute extreme operational and communication range, leaving them zero room for error. And if he guessed wrong, he stood to lose a lot of planes and a lot of flyers. Mitra had been bitten before by this bitter outcome in the Marianas, losing 104 planes simply because they were sent out too far, ran out of fuel, and never made it back. That was a tragic nightmare that he could not stand to relive. And what's more, if Yamato appeared further south or east and his pilot struck north, ending up out of range or missing her, it left the door wide open to do exactly what the Yamato was praying to do, charge in unopposed like a runaway freight train directly into the Hagushi beachhead, swinging down like the fucking battle axe she was born to be. This was worst case scenario. The Yamato being able to utterly slaughter the helpless marines at Hagushi beach before she could be stopped. Now I know the plan for Yamato is utterly fucked, but let's not forget what she is. We're talking about the baddest bitch on the high seas. Aside from swarming air power or a squad of other battleships, there was really nothing that stood a chance against her. She could smash cruisers and destroyers with a single round from those dirt-nasty 18-inch fuck-you-tubes. With her far superior reach, she could rain hell down on any other US battleship before they could close range and return a single shot. If Mitcher guessed wrong, defied his orders, launched a sky full of planes and came up empty, he shuddered to think of what failure could look like. Mitcher mulls the map boards and lights the next lucky strike with the butt of the one already clenched between his teeth. Even launching at a target he had eyes on had its risks. Things never did go to plan. What's the old saying? Make plans and God shoves his fist up your ass? As it stood now, all of these plans were aimed at a phantom. He still had no idea where Yamato would be by the time she came close enough to strike. With a thousand beguiling ifs looming, it was clear that there was none he could do other than wait and see where the chips fell. Old Baldy glances over at his personally specified and almost comically tall four foot high captain's swivel chair just waiting for him on the bridge. That would be his perch once it was finally time for action. But for now, it would have to sit empty until the cold light of dawn revealed just what the hell was what. Either way, at this stage, there was no need to tell Admiral Spruance anything at all. Tomorrow was going to be one hell of a day. But 
that's where we gotta leave it just for the moment. So, remember how I said earlier that epics take time to tell well? Well, shit, that's more true than I'd like it to be. I know I said Yamato's grand finale was available now, but, well, it's just not, okay? I'm sorry. Trust me, no one is more disappointed than yours truly. But rest assured, I am currently knee-deep in that swamp, chopping away at this very moment while you listen to this. And if you liked the immersive style of this last episode, well, this next one's gonna blow your fucking doors off. So stick with me. Giving this story its due has become an utterly Herculean task. One I promise I am game for, but as a one-man band, researching, writing, recording, sound designing, mixing, editing, and all the other shit, this little project is certainly taking its toll. Yet I can honestly say that it's become the ultimate labor of love. Or obsession. Love, obsession, what's the fucking difference? Anyway, I really do hope that you love it. In fact, if you do love it, then bloody tell somebody. Review it, like it on social media, share it. Whoever first showed you Saving Private Ryan, send it to that fucker. Let's start there. Just however you want to do it, please, make your support known. Even if you just want to tell me to go fuck myself, honestly, any interaction is appreciated. I'll also have a Patreon coming out at some point. Just as soon as I figure out what the hell a Patreon is. Patreon? Patreon? I don't know. I was told I should have one, so we'll get one. Now I'm just asking for a little more patience. The epic finale of Yamato's death saga is nearly in range. Hold fast, I won't let you down. From the War Daddy Podcast, cheers till then.